Welcome to Redefining Reality, where we live at the intersection of wellness, business, and the birth of a global tribe. So relax your body-mind, open your heart, and recognize that we are the ones we've been waiting for. What is going on, beautiful people, powerful people? Welcome back to another episode of Redefining Reality. I am your host, Brian Hardy, holistic nutritionist and wellness advisor, and here to guide you deeper into yourself, deeper into the world of health and wellness and all of those good and great things that we talk about on this show. Today... I am going to get right into it, and I'm super excited to release this episode. I recorded this just last week with my friend Mark Hayden, who I had the pleasure of meeting at the Biohacking Summit, and who was there presenting about psychedelics, in particular psilocybin. And uh, if you know me, then you know that these topics and these medicines are near and dear to my heart. And uh, there's lots of reasons for that, many of which you will learn about in this episode. And uh, yeah, Mark is just a fascinating individual, a very passionate individual, a dedicated individual who is doing the good work and fighting the good fight and spreading truth and spreading hope and spreading, you know, good quality information that's based in science and is responsible and is tempered in its approach uh, because many people can take these topics and take the idea uh, of psychedelics and psycho uh, excuse me psychedelic assisted psychotherapy and can uh, paint it to be a silver bullet that will heal everybody and fix all the world world's problems um, and is good for everybody and is you know a panacea and uh, that is just not the case. We must be responsible with these medicines and with our approach to these medicines uh, so that people don't get messed up and that people don't get pushed further into a trauma picture uh, or into a disease picture, right? But instead, we provide them with the right uh, environment and facilitators and context so these can be truly uh, healing experiences that enable us to grow, to learn, to transcend challenges and to uh to integrate um, difficult parts of our lives and ourselves. So that's what we're going to talk about today. All the show notes will be over at the blog, brianhardy.ca forward slash maps, M-A-P-S. That's because Mark is the executive director of Maps Canada. And uh, over there as well, you will find some links to the following, which are, you know, companies and things, products that I use and I recommend to enhance your life. The first one, Neurohacker Collective. These guys make Qualia. Uh, Qualia is a nootropic. It is a very well put together formula. They have the mind formula. They have the focus formula. Both are great. Both are going to give you a lot of bang for your buck. 
The Focus is a lot more affordable if you're on a budget, which is great to know for those of us that want to feel good and optimize but don't have a ton of cash lying around to throw at different supplements. So the Focus is a great option. Uh, but if you want the Mind, there's also the caffeine-free version. Uh, and either way, they have a 100-day money-back guarantee. So anything you order uh, is guaranteed for 100 days. So that is good stuff from those guys. Really, really appreciate their work and, uh, and their products. So use code BHARDY, B-H-A-R-D-Y, at checkout and get 15% off. And then we've also got my friends at Vitaging. I love medicinal mushrooms and adaptogenic herbs, and I use them pretty much every day. And I recommend them to all of my clients because they are powerful allies in our journey for energy and resilience and vitality and adaptability, which we need at this time. I'm currently recording this at the end of November 2018. We need it at this time more than ever because this is the shifting of the seasons. This is going from the fall into the winter, less sunlight, more time indoors, less exercise for a lot of us. People are getting sick oftentimes, and uh, these are the type of things that you want to have in your daily routine. You know, chaga mushroom, reishi mushroom, astragalus, um, cat's claw, you know, these kind of super immunity boosting and health supporting tonics and herbs are what you want to have going every day to build up your immunity, build up your energy, and build up your resilience. So go over there, use code HARDY. At checkout, get 10% off your order. Their prices are already very reasonable. So hit them up. Give them some love. Give yourself some love. And uh, I think that is all I've got for today. If you are in the Toronto area and want to learn more about these topics that we're talking about, biohacking, health optimization, um, you know, getting yourself quantified in some ways and really understanding what's going on in your body so you can make it better, then reach out to me either at optimalhealth at brianhardy.ca or through one of my social media platforms and uh, we'll continue the conversation because facilitating your wellness and your healing, your uh, transcending of things like anxiety, things like depression, things like chronic digestive issues which have plagued me in the past. Um, that's why I'm here. That's why I am here. I love to coach and to, uh, to just check in with people, see where they're at and offer some support. So if that sounds good to you, then you know where to find me and, uh, would be happy to, uh, to have a conversation. And, uh, I think that is all. I won't hold back any longer. This podcast is fantastic. Uh, if you have any questions, please engage with me, engage with Mark, reach out, get connected. And uh, this is a really exciting field that is going to explode in the next few years. So that's that. Enjoy. Take lots of notes. Again, all of the show notes for links, for products, for affiliates, for you know, up and coming things and things that Mark mentions, things that we talk about during the show, over at the blog, brianhardy.ca forward slash maps. Okay, let's get into it, and I will catch you on the other side. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Redefining Reality. Today, we've got a good one for you. I'm here with Mr. Mark Hayden, who is the adjunct professor 
at UBC's School of Population and Public Health, and is also, since 2011, has been the Executive Director of MAPS Canada, and MAPS is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Mark, thank you for being here. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Brian. It's a pleasure. So, as we kick off, uh, my listeners may have heard of MAPS in the past. It's something I'm quite certain I've mentioned at one time or another, um, having followed some of Rick Doblin's work for a number of years, and some of the, um, you know, the people in the space that are pushing this forward, pushing psychedelic therapies forward, pushing psychedelic uh, drugs, per se, to be recontextualized as medicines. Um, and that's something that can have a great benefit. Um, and so you are probably the more familiar and you know, schooled and experienced in these uh, topics and areas than anyone I've ever spoken to before. So I'm super excited to be able to have you here and to dive deep. Um, and before we get too, too deep, I'd love to uh, just hear a bit about your own story and how it is you came to be interested in this field you know, um, how, even, even the work at UBC with population uh, and, you know, public policy or public relating or ho however that fits in, um, I would love to hear how you ended up, you know, being where you're at today. Well, I, I spent most of my career working for the addiction services as a therapist and a supervisor. And through that process, I realized that addiction is not just a simple thing that some people unfortunately develop. It, you really, to understand addiction in our society, you have to understand the context of drugs in our society and what drives addiction. And addiction is partly driven by the fact that we criminalize drugs and the violence that that produces on people's families and communities is completely outrageous. And so, I became a spokesperson for ending the war on drugs, ending the violence to the people that we were um, providing service to. And in order to do that, you have to understand populations. You have to understand how populations are either become sick or become healthy. And the more we target a population with criminal justice interventions, the worse things get. People, people's health doesn't improve, it gets worse. Mm. And so somewhere as I worked in the addiction services, I slowly started publishing on post-prohibition models for the regulation and control of all currently illegal drugs. Basically, we need to end prohibition. And in order to help our communities, our families, our children get healthier. And so I explored that in detail over many publications. And somewhere along the road, I started noticing the healing potential of psychedelics because nobody had ever walked in our clinic and had a powerful healing experience and walked out and said, thanks, that was great, I'm done. It never happened, you know, we, we helped people, you know, through our processes of therapy and conversation and support groups and everything else we did, we, we would produce benefit, but it was never dramatic, it was long and slow and decades and years and months. And, and so I started seeing that psychedelics, the potential for psychedelic healing was significant. So I started to essentially bring this to the attention of my employer. As, as the research was opening up, you know, the psychedelic renaissance in research had started and 
it was of great interest to me. So I, I started just offering the, the research as it came down the pipe to my employer or employers, you know, my, the managers that worked in the addiction services. And they weren't interested. And they weren't interested because, not because it didn't demonstrate huge potential benefit for us, but because it was too political. Back in the early days, we couldn't talk about psychedelics as medicine. It was just big bad drugs. And, and so I would point so out- was, to, this, was this like the 80s, 90s? Where are we at in terms of timeline there? This is probably about 10 years ago is when I started. Okay. And so, as we, we essentially had the same conversation many times. Essentially, the conversation would go something like this. I would say, here's a piece of research that I think we should pay attention to. And they would say, can't do it, too political. And I would say, but hang on a second, we're not a political organization, we're a health organization. And if I recall correctly, um, we say that we're evidence-based. Here's the evidence. And they would say, we're too, it's too political. And I would say, but we're not a political organization. We're a health organization and our goal is to help people heal. And they would say, sorry, it's too political. And we went round and round this many times. And eventually I said, I, I can't do it anymore. So I, I quit and I started MAPS Canada, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, because I really wanted to, I have one lifetime. And if you only have one lifetime, then you may as well expend it to do the best possible good that you can do. And so I started MAPS Canada and I became very vocal about the need to take psychedelic medicine seriously. And, and I challenge, and I challenge both the psychedelic community and I challenge health professionals. So I challenge health professionals to take psychedelic medicine and healing seriously. And I challenge the psychedelic community to think about being incredibly careful about their use of psychedelics. I mean, one of the things that I do is I Google all the different, I have Google alerts for all the different psychedelics. And um, so watching what happens in the media around the planet with psychedelics that come dumped into my inbox every day, and a lot of things go wrong. You know, people do some really horrible things under the influence of psychedelics. And it always comes down to lack of preparation, lack of set and setting controls, and lack of supervision. Set being expectation, and setting being the environment that is taken in. So people who, don't, who aren't thoughtful about how they use psychedelics are a huge problem for themselves, their families, and their communities. All you have to do is go onto Arrowwood and read some of the trip reports, and there are some obnoxious things that people have done. And so challenging people who use psychedelics to be very, very thoughtful about how they use them, and challenging health professionals to be thoughtful about how they can be used has really been my goal. Okay, and in terms of you know some of the evidence, just for folks who may not be super in the know uh, around some of these things, I know today there's a lot of talk around psilocybin and MDMA-assisted psychotherapy and ayahuasca, um, but like, what was it that really was was the first uh, sort of evidence that came across your desk in terms of the research and in terms of just your awareness um, that, that made you think, okay, here's the potential for some healing use? Well, the beginning for me was Ibogaine, um, partly because I worked in the addiction services and Ibogaine for heroin addiction, for opiate addiction, appears to be profound. You know, the evidence is accumulating. Now, admittedly, the evidence is what's called anecdotal. 
means um, it's individuals who are recording and reporting their experiences and sometimes it's a collection of individuals. So it hasn't reached the level of, of um, acceptability of a stage one, two, and three clinical trial yet. So if you understand how gradients of evidence work, it, it's somewhere in the middle. You know, lots of individuals are reporting their experiences, but it seems to be very helpful for addictions. And so I, I became keenly interested in Ibogaine initially, but then subsequently in, interested in all, all the psychedelics. Now, now it's interesting because the ones that you mentioned are psilocybin and MDMA and mm -hmm. ayahuasca. So, so the reason why psilocybin is being used by researchers and is, is very similar to LSD. So why did researchers choose psilocybin and not LSD? It's a very interesting question. And it really comes down to the fact that psilocybin was easier to get through ethics review committees because LSD still has a stigma to it. Now, I find it interesting that during the 50s and 60s, there was a huge amount of research attention to psychedelics. And they had access to mescaline, psilocybin, and LSD. They were explicit why they didn't want to use mescaline eventually, because it was too long acting. It's 12, 14 hours, and it was just too much. You know, so you have to go home at the end of the day. Mm. So they, they were explicit as to why they didn't want to use mescaline. But the, gradually the research progressed, and they used LSD more and psilocybin less. And I've never found an explanation as to why that was true. But eventually, if you think about all of the research back in the 50s and 60s, they essentially concluded that LSD, or, or they focused more on LSD. And I don't exactly know why. But I, I think we should bring LSD back um, because the only reason that psilocybin is used, well, there are two reasons. One, it's easier to pass ethics review, and it's slightly shorter acting than LSD. So a therapist who wants to go home after six hours um, as opposed to a therapist who wants to go home after eight hours. But that doesn't mean that it's more effective than LSD. That's a question we haven't answered yet. And I think we need to do trials on LSD and on psilocybin and then see which is more useful. And more useful for what is really the question. So I think that we need to bring back LSD, work with psilocybin. MDMA seems to be profoundly effective for things like trauma. So MDMA will certainly be one of the ones that is used in the future. It's the one that I'm most involved with. Um, but there are other ones as well. There's things like 3-MMC. There's 5-MeO-DMT. There's deschloroketamine. There's, there's a variety of other ones that are certainly of interest from a healing perspective. And I think that as the research develops, we'll be, uh, we'll be slowly including more and more of these medicines into the, into the list of medicines that we use to help people with a whole variety of different disorders. Yeah, it, it makes me wonder um, if it was simply easier to synthesize and standardize LSD and dose it. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, when they're using psilocybin in a research study, are they taking that from actual fungus? Are they growing those somewhere and, and taking it out? Or are they synthesizing a, you know, um, like a pharmaceutical like psilocin or like the metabolite of? They're making synthetic psilocybin that, as you observe, breaks down into psilocin in its, as it goes through the liver, and that's the active ingredient. But what they're actually making is synthetic psilocybin. Um, it's easier and more precise to use synthetic than it is to try and isolate that from a mushroom. And to take, um, researchers will never use raw mushrooms, and they'll never use them for a variety of reasons. One is 
there are sometimes people have different experiences on different you know types of mushrooms and even within a batch of mushrooms in a tray the strength of psilocybin varies caps have more psilocybin in them than stems and how you dry them varies as well so so it isn't a standardized product so you can't use plant-based well fungus based um, products because they're not completely standardizable a synthetic product um, you can give people exact dosages and um, scientists are interested in precision yeah it makes a lot of sense and I mean, I love talking about anecdotal evidence and, and, you know, you said it lands somewhere in the middle in terms of relevancy and weighting in, you know, a scientific conversation. Um, I know for myself and for people I've talked to, clients, friends, you know, mentors, people who have had their own transformations and their own healing experiences, which are becoming more and more numerous. You know, the more people I speak to who are, um, you know, either curious or many times desperate to find some sort of, you know, alleviation from whatever their malady might be, depression, anxiety, you know, addiction and so forth. Um, I've heard quite a few of these amazing turnarounds and yet um, we know that that's not always the case because of the factors you mentioned earlier, right? And so I want to really dive into, um, you know, the reality of psychedelic assisted psychotherapy and what that means for the participant and for the practitioner um, and like the responsibility there and sort of where you see that um, the challenges of that and sort of best practices and where we can project forward to sort of create sustainable models that can be replicated and shared on a wider scale. That's a big question <laughs> or, or six big Take questions. Your time. Take your time. Okay, so let's just play with some thoughts here. So, Psychedelic assisted psychotherapy appears from the initial round of research to be very helpful for some people. So for some people, for the majority of people, it seems to help. Um, I'm, I'm using caution in my language intentionally. For some people, it doesn't seem to help. Um, and if it isn't carefully structured, we know from the anecdotal evidence, if you go into Arrowwood and you read trip reports, uh, people sometimes have absolutely horrible experiences with psychedelics and, and things become worse. So, you know, it is, it is the responsibility for a therapist to actually screen people carefully, very, very careful screenings to try and figure out who will be benefited and who will be harmed. You know, I mean, there are some mental health conditions that if you use a large dose of psychedelic with, things do not get better, they get worse. So trying to carefully screen people so you find the right people who will be benefited and then you set them up in the right way and you provide a huge amount of support afterwards for the integration work. One of the illusions, I get emailed every day by people who really want psychedelic psychotherapy and as I start to engage these folks, there's an illusion out there that you, know, you take the medicine, you lie down, and you wake up healed. It doesn't work that way. In fact, I would offer that it actually never works that way. Really what happens is psychedelic medicines can, can show us parts of ourselves incredibly clearly that need to be worked on and need to be integrated that the lessons need to be really brought into our life and a huge amount of work has to happen afterwards and, and often the initial experience especially for people with things like a trauma history it feels destabilizing at first it, it doesn't feel good it's not a pleasurable it's not a, it's not a wonderful experience people don't leap out of the bed saying i'm enlightened that doesn't happen <laughs> So what actually happens is people often feel not okay. 
you know, there's a destabilizing factor and, and that's normal, that's okay. But as, as things, you know, as the ego, if you think about this from a psychological point of view, your, our sense of self really starts to change. You know, the, the, the structure, the, the pieces of our personality that we build up to identify ourselves, who we are in this world, kind of come apart a little bit. And that's, that's okay, that's fine. And, but as they come apart, it's really stressful. And then the goal is for the, the very careful, supportive environment to help them come back together again in a way that is constructive and positive and healing. And that takes quite a bit of work at a, at a high level of skill on the part of the therapist to do. In fact, as we start to you know, build our therapeutic community in Vancouver, it's really interesting because the, one of the things as I get inundated with, with emails is the number of people want to be psychedelic psychotherapists because they really want to participate in the healing process that is involved here. And it is significant, but I just, I just feel like I'm in a place of caution today. So you, you've caught me in that mode. But the, the work is really difficult, sitting with people who often become somewhat destabilized and needing to be the calm, grounded, compassionate center to support the person in their healing journey as these painful emotions surface takes a lot of focus. So it's really challenging to do the work. And I think the challenge of doing the work is something that really our whole community hasn't really struggled with yet. And I think that's something that we will have to deal with over time is the, the difficulty of being in that place with people as, as we walk the healing path together. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's very easy to create fantasies, right? Like some, yeah. some of what you mentioned of, you know, take this thing and your troubles will go away. It's a magic bullet. And um, yeah, totally, totally not true. And although many times um, and I'll speak from, you know, my personal experience, I've had uh, experiences where immediately I felt uh, better or uplifted or just an expanded perspective. I felt more like myself, more connected to myself, more connected to nature, right? And so there was an immediate um, and oftentimes persisting, at least for you know a few days or weeks, uh, positive uplift. Um, yeah. And like you said, without digging deeper and really mining the yes. lessons, and in the in in the integrating um integrating what's what's the word it's sort of like you know the subconscious i see it as the, sub, the subconscious is always seeking integration you know so we can experience wholeness and yet there's barriers to that yeah and so psychedelics might remove some of the barriers but then they're going to come back unless you do the work and keep breaking them down Yes. Yeah, so, so I, I mean, I don't know you personally, but I'm going to guess. I'm going to guess that you would be described by a researcher as a healthy normal. And so what you just described is a healthy normal experience. So if a healthy normal person takes a moderate to low dose of a psychedelic and does it safely, so they're careful about the context of it, so they're not driving, for example, and not running around the street, not interacting with other people, listening to gentle music, soft, inspiring music, and so a healthy, normal person who takes a moderate dose of a psychedelic in a carefully controlled way often emerges with a positive experience. That's true. Um, the people that I'm talking about are people who come to us with pretty significant levels of trauma um, and, and addiction issues. And if I look at the research generally, they, they tend to select people with pretty pronounced and long histories of mental health disorders. Now addiction being mental health disorder, trauma being a mental health disorder. And so 
when we're dealing with that population, um, it, it's quite challenging. And it, it's, it, so it's different. And that population doesn't experience the same kind of experience as a healthy normal would experience, partly because they're there to experience the, they're there to work their trauma through. That's why they're there. These are people who have had, who are often housebound, who, who really, it's had a huge impact on their lives. And they can, the unconscious tape loop of the trauma keeps replaying itself again and again and again. And so their healing journey is a long way to go. Now, if you just look at, now, now I've offered the voice of caution. I want to offer the voice of optimism as well. If you actually look at the numbers, the, the numbers that researchers are publishing in terms of taking this, these, these addicted and traumatized populations, the numbers are good. You know, the, the Michael, Michael Mithoffer, who is the originator of the research that I'm involved with, um, he started, and the numbers that he published were 82% success rate. So that's dealing with a traumatized population. It's with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, with MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. The, the literature says that it's somewhere around 10% effective, and the dropout rate is really high because people don't want to experience um, flooding or prolonged exposure. They don't want to have the, their trauma recreated again and again and again, which is the current best practice treatment for PTSD. Um, so the dropout rate is really high and it takes a very long time. So, so Michael Methoffer's original paper was extremely positive. So can you replicate that? Well, let's find out. So we then did our stage two clinical trial with many therapy teams throughout North America and, um, and, and actually in Europe and, and observed a 67% level of effectiveness, which is still really, really positive and encouraging. So it, it appears that PTSD is very responsive to MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. If I look at some of the other research of things like um, anxiety and depression and, and smoking cessation, admittedly the smoking cessation studies are, are, don't have huge numbers associated with them, but having worked in the addiction services, I know that it's really hard to quit smoking. You know, it's, it's one of the more challenging ones. And so the, the success rates of smoking cessation programs are very, very low. If you have like 5% or 10%, you're doing really well. And that's, that's cherry picking with finding motivated people who really want to quit. So they tend to be low success rates and, um, and with, with populations that are, are motivated to, to stop smoking. So the first round of research looked at 15 people and 12 of them stopped smoking. And, um, and so it, it was significant. So that's, a, that's, that's, that's outrageous, actually, to have that level of success with, with smoking cessation is, is really quite something. And um, it also appears to be successful with, um, with depression. Now, psychedelic treatments, psychedelic psilocybin for, for depression seems to be really effective. So, so the, the numbers are good. And so I'm just offering a challenge because often researchers only talk about the positive numbers. And, and there isn't that voice of caution as well. And I want to I voice both. Yeah, no, and I appreciate that, right? It's, it's part of my whole journey and my whole mission with this podcast and with my content and the work that I do is to put us more deeply in touch with reality. Right. Ah, okay, good. <laughs> and so I'm not interested in entertaining delusions, you know, yes. um, as hard as it may be to, to accept that the fantasies and delusions that we have cooked up aren't true. Um, you know, I'm, I'm one who's willing and uh, 
up for the you know bitter medicine as it may be um so i appreciate that i appreciate that and it's nice to be able to to counterbalance all of the positive uh press that a lot of these things are getting because you know ceos in silicon valley are microdosing and so now everyone wants to microdose because you can be like the guy from limitless and you know work 12 hours a day and all these different things so i I really appreciate the balanced approach in the more grounded and clinical experience approach yeah anything that helps you to believe that you don't need to sleep anymore is probably a problem (laughs) Uh, it's not going to work in the long run (laughs) it's a a short term not a long term but i mean yeah i mean the the microdosing discussion is actually fascinating um because the first round of microdosing surveys have have been done and, and looking at them is really interesting and so i'm involved with sort of the second wave we're doing a another um, another survey to kind of build on the first round to really understand what's going on in the microdosing community. Um, so ob- observation number one is people tend to use LSD, not psilocybin. Now, whether that's an access issue or whether it's they've tried both and they prefer it, we don't know why people are using LSD. It would kind of make sense to me because LSD is slightly longer acting. So if you want it just to be stable in the bloodstream sort of for the entire workday, LSD would make sense. And people are reporting, you know, all, all the normal things, um, you know, an uplifted mood, more ability to focus at work, um, more creativity at work are kind of the standards. But I'm, I'm always interested in sort of the details. Now, one of the details that has kind of sparked my interest is, is the question, is a very small dose of LSD useful for people with schizophrenia? Now, I can't just say that without giving you a context for that, because all of the research, I probably all, actually that's not true, let's go some, some of the research, most, there's the right word, most of the research says that LSD and psychedelics and schizophrenia are a really bad combination. And they're bad from two perspectives. One is if you have schizophrenia and you take a psychedelic, it makes everything worse. You know, you become destabilized, you're not, you're not happy, um, it's, it's not a good thing. And there are examples going into Arrowwood again, reading trip reports, people who have taken a psychedelic, often, you know, poorly managed psychedelic, where they had a vulnerability to schizophrenia that, that emerged. You know, they, they had it in their family history, and they took a psychedelic, and then they had a, a problem that doesn't go away. So there's, there's a huge warning around, particularly schizophrenia and psychedelics. So I would describe that from a research point of view as the highest hanging fruit. You know, the researchers right now are looking at addictions and MDMA, assisted psychotherapy for PTSD and depression and anxiety. So those are the easy ones. Those are the ones that researchers really want to look at because they're probably gonna yield the quickest positive results. And then there's the medium hanging fruit, and then there's the last that the researchers will ever get to. And, and I think schizophrenia is probably the most difficult because there's so much evidence that says that it's a really bad combination. So it, it was of interest to me that somebody with schizophrenia tracked me down and, and told me that he was using LSD and psilocybin to, in, in very small dosages when he felt his symptoms of schizophrenia coming on. And it, when he took it, the symptoms went away and he was able to work. And he's a, he's a manager in an organization um, in Vancouver that requires you know, focus and presence and intelligence. And, you know, and, and so it was interesting. I, I, I took him out for dinner with my partner, who's a psychiatrist. 
And at the end of the conversation, I said to her, does he have schizophrenia? And her answer was, you know, not, he doesn't have, you know, obviously florid schizophrenia that impairs his ability to communicate, but he does report symptoms of schizophrenia. Like he has voices that, that are very intrusive and they come periodically. So, and when he heard the voices, he would take a very small dose of, of, of um, LSD or, or psilocybin and the voices would go away and he'd go, go back to being functional at work. So that just intrigued me. Now that's an N of one. So that doesn't mean anything. That's not evidence. That's just one person talking. And so it was of interest when the first round of, um, of surveys on microdosing came back. This is by um, Rhoda Pertanker and Robin um, Thomas Anderson, um, their, their research. They had 900 respondents and a few of them, about 12 identified with having major mental health disorders. And a few of those had schizophrenia. So it didn't, they didn't ask the next question is why are they microdosing when they have schizophrenia? But they are microdosing. And so I just find that really interesting. So I don't know where that's going to lead, but it's, it's just really curious. You know, how, what, where does that lead to? So I'm, I'm going to do a survey that, that is hopefully larger and, and really asks that very specific question. Are you, do you have schizophrenia? What are you taking? Do you find it useful and why? And this is, this, is the, this is the edge of research right now. This is, this is pushing the edge and trying to find out who's doing what and why and what dosage. And I'm fascinated with the whole process. Likewise, likewise. And the first thing that started going through my mind is how can we hook someone like that up to a QEEG or put them into an fMRI yes. pre yeah. and post and see in real time you know, the effects changing? Because, yes. you know, we know certain things about, you know, down-regulating the default mode network yes. and changing blood flow in the brain. Yes. Um, but to be able to see it and almost like a side-by-side, you have the, the individual, yes. you know, their voices are coming on, they take whatever the medicine is, and then the shift. And just to be able to map all that neurologically yes. would be wonderful. Yes. I don't know. I don't know much about fMRIs, but I, I don't know if they're sophisticated enough to be able to see you know, the onset of a symptom of schizophrenia. I, I don't know. So uh, that would be interesting. If, if it could, if you could take this individual that I'm talking about, put him in an fMRI and have a little button with him so he presses the button when the voices come and you can see it on the machine, would be outrageous. And then he could do it before and then he could do it afterwards. But I, I, honestly, I, I, I doubt the technology is there, but I, but I don't know. Mm. I, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not informed about that. Yeah. And I'm honestly not that much either. I've just heard, you know, people like Sam Harris talk about uh, different brain states and yes. um, fMRI and, you know, yes. tell if someone's lying and so forth and right. very, very interesting things, um, which are far above, you know, my scientific rigor. All right. Um, right. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, bringing it back, uh, you said, you know, that you're most involved with the studies with uh, MDMA currently. Yes, um, and if if you could give people who are listening a bit of the background and the current status, because I know within a few years, all things you know, fingers crossed, um, MDMA should be approved as a medicine. Yes, and so could you just tell us a bit of the the backstory um, sure. and what's brought us up to now, and sort of what the next steps are? Yes, so let me give you a bit of context first. So it's interesting, as you probably have heard, cannabis is now legal in Canada. Yes, so yes. Cannabis 
what the reason why cannabis is legal in Canada is it was turned into a medicine, but it wasn't turned into a medicine through the lens of physicians. It was turned into a medicine in popular opinion. And so as a result of the popular opinion, Justin Trudeau got in front of the parade and said, okay, we're going to legalize it. So, but they didn't do stage one, two, and three clinical trials, then take medicine through the, the hands of the doctors in Canada. They did it differently. So we are turning psychedelics into a medicine, but we're doing it through the lens of science. So we're actually going through what all drugs need to go through to be prescribed by your physician. The last time you took a drug that your doctor said, you need to take this for whatever you have, it has gone through a stage one, two, and three kind of clinical trial. So what that actually means is you have to prove, and actually it's also gone through preclinical toxicology. So you prove that it's safe in animals. You prove that it's safe in people, that it's non-toxic. And then you prove that it's effective in a very small population and you kind of work on developing a protocol that will then be refined as you take it to a large population. And the large population is large enough to make it generalizable to you, me, and everybody else on the planet. So you have to prove that it's safe and it's effective and it's effective with many people. And then it goes to a government and they say, yes, doctors can now prescribe these. And then you have to go through putting it on the schedule and coming up with a fee structure and, um, under, and doing training for physicians as to how they're going to make this available. So we're doing that process. So we are going through the standard process to develop psychedelics into medicines from a medical perspective. So we are getting approval from Health Canada in Canada. We're getting approval from the FDA in the States. In fact, in the States, we were granted breakthrough status which means that it was seen as being so effective that it, they want to encourage the speed of it. They want, to, they want to help speed it up because they want to make it available as quickly as they possibly can. So that's exciting. That, that's never happened with mm-hmm. psychedelic before. So we're on, we're on a roll. So we, we believe that MDMA will be available sometime around 2021 in both Canada and the United States. And then our goal is to open up clinics and, and to provide MAPS Canada therapy for people who are being trained and will we'll roll it out across Canada as people then open up the doors to provide this therapy. So there's all kinds of questions here that we don't have. So the kind of discussions that we're having amongst ourselves is, would it be possible to use it off-label? And what does that mean? It, many psychiatric medications are used by psychiatrists for the indication that they're prescribed for. So, you know, the, you, the, 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 the um, CPS, the book that physicians use to describe what medicines are good for what problems, um, defines very precisely and, and tightly um, dosages and, and indications that it's good for. And then some people notice that it's useful for something else as well. And so they use it for something that's outside of the CPS. So they use it for something, and the language used to describe that is off-label. So it's not the standard use, using it for something else. So would it be possible to use psychedelics off-label? So we know that it's useful for MDMA. We know that MDMA is useful for PTSD. We probably can guess that it's useful for other things as well. So would it be okay for psychiatrists and physicians and therapists to start using it in a different way? So we haven't got there yet, but it, how will that evolve? To what extent will you know, there be public and governmental and bureaucratic acceptance for this medicine that allows some level of flexibility? I mean, obviously we're not there yet, 
but that's the discussion that we're having. And then just in terms of your own, you know, vision and, you know, if you could wave a magic wand and have your, have your way as it were in terms of how this might roll out and what the, um, sort of governing philosophy might be or best practices for, for ensuring, uh, you know, at the very least not harming individuals or, or screening effectively. Um, but on the other end, you know, of, of sort of optimizing health and happiness and wellness for a quote unquote healthy normal. So the long-term plan that I envision is that slowly psychedelics will become available for healing. So first MDMA, second psilocybin, LSD is probably on the list, and then a few others go through the research channels. And then we need to take a long, slow, deep breath and say, so criminalizing psychedelics doesn't work. So we know criminalizing cannabis doesn't work, but all of the language that Justin Trudeau is using to legalize cannabis, things like reducing access to youth and keeping the money out of organized crime, that actually applies to all currently illegal drugs. And the fentanyl crisis is certainly making us question whether or not it's a fentanyl crisis or a drug prohibition crisis. Maybe we need to allow people with addiction to access. That sounds like legalization to me. We need to be talking to stop this thing called prohibition and start to legalize all currently illegal drugs. Psychedelics are on the list and all of them are on the list. So how would we do that? So what we know is that the harms of psychedelics tend to be the, the circumstances of use. They're not addictive, generally speaking. They have a very low addiction potential. You know, I worked for 30 years for the addiction services. Nobody ever walked in my office and said, I can't stop taking LSD. So low addiction potential. They tend to be non-toxic or very low toxicity levels. So all the problems that happen with psychedelics is basically lack of supervision, lack of very careful attention to set, which is expectations, setting, which is the environment, screening people who are inappropriate. Some people shouldn't use psychedelics. And, um, and integration of the experiences. If, if those things, the screening, set, setting, safety issues, and integration are taken care of, they tend to produce positive benefits for people. So if we, if we take that and then work with it, then what we need to do is set up a new profession. I call it a psychedelic supervisor. So psychedelic supervisors would um, enable people to come to their context. And it doesn't really matter what their context is. We could have people that are specialty in PTSD um, treatment. We could have people who are specialized in multi-day dance festivals. We have people who are specialized as reconnecting with nature and going for walks in the forests. We could have people who do indigenous um, drum circles and work with peyote. We have people who do ayahuasca. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are. What matters is somebody's in charge. Somebody is responsible for screening people, setting people up for the experience, supervising the experience as it unfolds, and then being there for people at the end to allow them to integrate the experience. So psychedelic supervisors are, would be a new profession, and they would have access to a whole wide range of different, super, different psychedelics, from ketamine to desiloroketamine, to LSD, to psilocybin, to MDA, MDMA, to basically all the different psychedelics. And they, who would be part of the profession? Well, psychiatrists would be part of the profession because people would be approaching that, that new profession, psychedelic supervisor, 
with mental health disorders. Psychologists would be part of the profession because people would be approaching that profession when they had issues that go on between their ears. They need to really rethink some things going on in their lives and, and recontextualize. They need therapy, they need talk therapy. Social workers would be involved because social workers, clinical social workers deal with families and groups and, um, and couples therapy. And some of the psychedelics are wonderful for couples therapy. And certainly group therapy is what social workers do really well. Indigenous people would be part of it. The peyote people should be in the room and, and the ayahuasca master should be in the room. The, um, so all of these different professions and, and these indigenous groups should come together and basically say, we need to collectively develop best practices for this new profession called psychedelic supervisor. And out of that group comes this new profession, you know, and they would be establishing what the what's the training required for these people. And um, how, how do you make, how do you work with best practices? This group would then be responsible for best practices and training people and quite frankly, enforcing best practices. If one of these professionals is inappropriately sexual with a client, then that client needs to, uh, needs to be able to complain. So they complain to the board um, or the college or whatever the name of it is of psychedelic supervisors. And, and then the, the uh, best practice belief then comes back down the, the channel. So, it's essentially a new profession that's not that different from accounting and physicians and veterinarians. And uh, it would be that those people would be able to provide services to a wide range of different people using a wide range of different psychedelics. Now, curious enough, I, I've presented that idea at many different conferences and I always get challenged. And the, and the challenge is somebody would stand up at the back of the, the row and, and say, I love psychedelics. And what I do with my wife, boyfriend, partner, when we both take a psychedelic, I don't want supervised. And they have a point. So I, I recommend you know, the, the, the professional level, which is the licensing, but also I recommend a second tier, which is um, a, a certification. So people who are certified take a few weekends, you know, a weekend of knowledge and a weekend of skill where they have an experience. And at that level, you can't provide the service for payment, you know, you, you can, but you can use it yourself and with your partners and with a few friends. And so it's not a paid professional level, but it's, it's a, allowing people access for their own personal use. So I support a model that allows for both professional paid services um, that are large scale and um, small um, experiences that people just want to have that don't involve supervision. Well, I love that vision. That sounds like a, you know, the best, the best uh, working model that I've heard thus far. Um, and, you know, it's, I mean, I, I don't see any glaring issues or anything like that. And it makes a lot of sense that, you know, we just, just have a, have a balanced approach to these things and give people the freedom uh, and the ability to demonstrate their competence. Yes. Right? And then allow them to be mature humans and, yes. you know, take agency of their own bodies and minds. Yes. Um, it seems simple enough. Now, it's interesting. My fellow authors, we wrote this up in a paper. It's available on my website. You go check it out. And the, the, the paragraph that was most challenging for us was the access to youth paragraph. So, you know, do we have a, you know, 18 or 19 or 21 or do we have a clear, this is for adults only, or do we allow youth to participate? And so we went back and forth and back and forth and rewrote that paragraph many times. And in order to, 
to uh, come up with a position that we came up with, we really went to a variety of different places. Um, we went to indigenous groups. We looked at the literature around indigenous cultures. And, and what we saw is that it was inconsistent. Um, the ayahuasca communities tend to have, there's nothing to do with age. You know, when, it, when ayahuasca is woven into a community, pregnant women show up, women who are toddlers show up, you know, teenagers show up. It, it doesn't matter. It's just a fam it's done in the context of family groups and age is irrelevant. And, um, you know, youth are wandering through the process. So I'm toddling through the process. So, so that, that was interesting. We looked at the peyote folks and they do have um, a youth barrier. So, you know, the, the, at, at puberty, essentially, when one turns into a man or turns into a woman, then you are invited into the process and, and then you can have your transformative experience and then you are welcomed into adulthood. So that was interesting. We went into um, the literature around alcohol and we observed that there were, I'm going to guess here, I think it's 21 states that have some kind of legislation that allow youth to access alcohol if they're supervised by their parents, essentially having a sip of wine at the dinner table is legal for young folks. That's interesting, okay. Um, and then we went into just the understanding of how health services are provided. Now, in the province of British Columbia, there's a thing called the mature minor, which doesn't have to do with age, it has to do with maturity. So if you're old enough to ask for a service and you know what you're asking for, a physician can provide that service without telling your parents. So a 15-year-old girl shows up and says, I want to be on the birth control pill. The, the physician doesn't need to talk to the parents. You know, they just say, is this person mature enough to understand what they're asking for? And if the answer is yes, then they can just deal with them, uh, deal with the request. And hopefully, you know, do some education and engagement around the request, and, but treat them independently of their parents. And it's not about age, it's about maturity. So we put all of that together, and what we came up with is, yes, youth can access psychedelic experiences if, first of all, they are strongly encouraged to do it within the context of their families. They should invite their parents and, and do it to bond, to bond to their parents and to do healing within the family context. That's kind of the first encouragement. But if a youth comes and says, you know, I don't want to do it with my parents, I just want to do it with with you know under supervision yes they can if they're mature enough to know what they're asking for and they receive the service under a trained professional who is licensed and has a specialty of providing the service to youth okay yeah i like it i had no <laughs> idea there was such a thing in uh, in bc i mean it makes sense you guys seem to be more progressive out there <laughs> right, right. With all the exercise and fresh air and you know Absolutely. nature time. Um, yes. But I, 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 do you know if there's anything similar in Ontario or other provinces? Or I, I, I don't know how healthcare legislation works in the other provinces. I'm, I'm kind of a BC person, so to be honest with you, I, I don't know. I, w I wouldn't be surprised if it was consistent across Canada. But um, yeah, I would imagine a 15 year old girl can go into a doctor's office in Ontario and ask her birth control without having her parents call. But, I, but honestly, I, I'm not familiar with the legislation. I, re I read the legislation in BC and not in other provinces. And as we both know, health is a provincial jurisdiction. Yes, and one that, uh, you know, oftentimes really lacks this grounded common sense approach. Right, um, yeah. Yeah, from I'm aware uh, of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's maddening. It's maddening. And so, I mean, 
this conversation has been, you know, such a breath of fresh air for myself. And I think for everyone listening um, to know that, okay, no, there's good science being done and there's a plan ahead and there is well thought out, you know, um, historically uh, relevant and, and sort of, you know, um, contextually informed or, or ancestrally informed, even when you're talking about indigenous practices, um, ancestrally informed ways of doing this, right? And, and it just makes, makes me very hopeful because I look at places, you know, like in Europe, for example, uh, many European countries, uh, you know, a little bit of wine for the kids during dinner or lunch or whatever, it's not a big deal. And they don't have the same rampant um, abuse, you know, young people abusing these things. So I think that is the key, right? What you're describing is the key to destigmatize and normalize and help to remove some of these things from the, um, the likelihood of being abused by those that are young and want to rebel or want to have fun or want to self-medicate in some way, right? And I think that's something that I always need to remember and that I hope everyone listening can remember is that any addiction really is, unless, you know, in my experience at least, is a form of, of self-medication, right? It's reaching for something that appears to or temporarily can ease some pain or provide some distance or provide a bit of a different perspective from the whatever it is, you know, the traumas, the depressions, the persistent negative thoughts, whatever it is. And so um, to maintain that sense of compassion versus criminalization, I think it just has to underlie it all. And that's why uh, I'm, I'm, I'm excited that, you know, folks like you and organizations like MAPS and all of the various researchers that y'all are working with are, are doing this, right? And, and creating a better way forward. So people can break those cycles of addiction and, uh, you know, violence to themselves and abuse to themselves and others um, in hopes of, you know, reconnecting to a, a, a grander perspective. And a, uh, for me, it, it always comes back to sort of coming back to self, to nature and whatever else has, you know, uh, created this whole experience, right? Where, whether you're religious or not, I think there's something here and psychedelic experiences have reinforced this for me. There's something here um, that's a lot bigger and wiser uh, than us. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, having said all that, I would love to hear um, what would be, you know, for someone who's been listening, someone who's been uh, really captivated by this conversation so far, what might be three resources you could offer? These could be books, documentaries, websites, you know, teachers, what have you, um, that you think are, you know, worth, worth investigating? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, the two books that we, we, um, Maps Canada goes to lots of events and conferences, and we always run a table where we sell books. The two most popular books at our table are Ayelet Waldman's A Really Good Day and her story on microdosing. Um, it's, it's really interesting because she's, she writes very well. She was a prosecutor, so she was a lawyer, and she had pretty significant mental health problems. And she had taken a list of mental health medications that filled up a chunk of a page. It was amazing how she'd really tried to heal herself with the psychiatric um, profession 
unsuccessfully and eventually decided to start microdosing LSD. And, and she documented meticulously her experience from day to day. And essentially what she said is this was the best thing she'd done. I mean, it didn't, it didn't immediately cure her, you know, there's no magic bullet here, but it certainly of all of the medications she took, it was the most promising. So, and, and she writes very skillfully. So it's an entertaining read. So her journey into microdosing LSD is something, Ayala Waldman is her name. And then Michael Pollan's book, um, How to Change Your Mind. That, that's, Michael Pollan brings a level of credibility and a whole new community into the discussion. And his, um, his thoughtful and balanced book is a joy to read. And it really gives you the, the history and, and the context of um, psychedelic research today. So those are the two, two immediate resources that I, I recommend for people. Yeah, and the, the websites, Maps Canada website, Maps USA website has lots of stuff on it that's helpful if people want to dive into it deeper. Beautiful. I had never heard of that uh, really good day. That sounds like uh, just, yeah, it sounds like a really good read. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to check that one out. Yeah, I'd recommend it. Okay. Um, this is a bit, you know, this is just more of a personal slash, you know, I'm just always curious to, when I talk to people. Um, if you have it, what might be your favorite self-care practice? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm an exercise junkie. Um, I'm, I'm a cardiovascular addict. Um, there's a mountain here that I run up all the time. <laughs> so it's very clear for me is I find endorphins or that's my answer to uh, any stress in my life. I just go run up a mountain somewhere. Mm. Um, yeah. Oh, you're making me want to move to BC. Yeah. Yeah. The grouse grind, you know, is, is, I've heard it. My, is my happy place. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you really want to know. I love it. I love it. I did it this morning. It's, um, yeah, it's, uh, that's what I do. <laughs> oh, beautiful. Beautiful. Um, <laughs> I'm also curious, you know, in the big picture, what do you think is at the root of, you know, um, the health issues or, or, or whatever crisis people might like to label it as uh, that's facing humanity today? Like, what do you think's the biggest thing we need to look at and bring attention to? I think the inequality of wealth distribution, the inegalitarianism of our societies is a profound problem. Um, if you're interested in a book on it, it's The Spirit Level by Wilkinson um, explores, again, it's a public health, I'm a public health guy. It's a public health analysis of our society around how money is spread around. And the more the money gets concentrated at the top of the pile, the sicker our society gets. So I think that's an absolutely huge issue. Um, and then just social networking, how people connect with each other and the increasing sense of isolation that people have. And often screen time, you know, the more people spend on screen time, the more lonelier people get. So just getting people to hang out with each other and support each other and not just dive into this endless pile of video games and, and um, screens that seem to captivate our lives. Um, I think that can be a real challenge for us. And how do we just hang out with each other as, a, as people and find ways of supporting each other? Yeah, it seems like a revolutionary act to like sit, sit around and, you know, have some, you know, tea or coffee or wine and play like a, bo a board game or some cards. Yeah, right? just uh, finding great. ways, connecting with people. Yeah, the yes. simple things. 
one of the things that you know people will say to me, you know, how many how many friends do you have? Well, I have you know nine hundred and fifty friends. But I say, let's define the word friend. A friend is somebody you recognize. You know, a friend if you walk past them on the street, you'd be able to stop and say hello. A friend is somebody that will bring you soup when you're sick. Mm. And if they don't won't bring you soup when you're sick, then they're not a friend. <laughs> I like that. I like that, and I feel blessed to have people who uh, who I know would bring me soup if I was sick. Yes, it's a very, it's a very, uh, in a strange way, um, seemingly rare and privileged thing to to say these days, which is yeah. quite frightening. Yeah. <sighs> oh wow, wow. Well, I could talk to you for hours, um, and perhaps we'll do a round two down the down the road as sure. things develop as more research comes across your desk and across my eyes and there's various other things to, uh, to talk about. Um, but I, I want to wrap with just two more questions. And the first, okay. is there something uh, recently or currently that you are or have let go of? Actively, this could be a thought pattern, a belief a structure, uh, a habit, you know, that was, Sort of, you know, negatively impacting your life. I'm always curious to know uh, what those are for people in in our culture obsessed with accumulation. Um, I'm always curious to know about what are we getting rid of. That's an interesting question. You mean physically, like, oh, no, it could be anything. It could yeah. have been a toxic relationship. It could have been a way that you allow your mind to speak to yourself. Um, you know, self-critical behavior. That's probably one that I'm always working on. Hmm. And if nothing pops up, that's fine too. Yeah, I don't have an immediate answer to that. No, hmm. nothing pops to my mind. Yeah, which is probably a good sign. You know, yeah. in my eyes, that's a good sign. You know, okay. you, know. you get up, you run up the mountain, you let go of your troubles along the way, you sweat them out. Yeah, you know? okay. What else is there? What else is exactly. there? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I have endorphins in my brain right now. Life is pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and then the last one is just, you know, because the name of this show is Redefining Reality. And I'm curious what that brings up inside of you when you hear those words. Well, it's, it's interesting because I think that our whole there's a community of people that support psychedelics and uh, they are both researchers, academics, physicians, psychiatrists, and people, and, and those people may have had their own experiences or not. And then if you attend conferences, there's a whole community of people who just love psychedelics and, and they aren't professionally involved, but they just really see the healing potential. So it's interesting to, to kind of put all of those thoughts together and say, what kind of society are we aiming at? You know, where, where will this all go at some point in the long-range future? Because I think the promise of psychedelics is they will help heal relationships. People's relationships with each other will be closer. If people took them seriously and skillfully, um, partner relationships, sexual relationships would be better. You know, MDMA is good for partners, generally speaking. Um, if they were taken in family groups, there's enough people that have talked about, you know, having done it with their parents, it was the best experience of their lives. So, you know, helping family bonding, um, it could be part of it. And, and certainly community bonding, you know, um, if you think about how they're used in indigenous communities, you know, getting together as a community and doing a circle, 
um, can be quite helpful in just improving people's relationships. You know, it doesn't solve problems completely, but it just helps. It's a, it's a, it's a force of good as opposed to a force of harm. So, you know, the communities that do them now, the indigenous communities that use them, you know, aren't enlightened communities. Um, but they, if you look at them, they, they use this to help them to deal with relationship problems and psychological problems. And so it's, it's a healing tool. And it's a tool that I find interesting because it's about connections. It's about connection to self, connections to others, connections to family, connections to friends. And we, we, we live in a society that is profoundly disconnected. And so that particular tool, the tool of psychedelic medicine, seems to be addressing some of our core root problems today because they are about disconnections as people become increasingly lonely and disconnected from the planet. I mean, we don't wander in the woods enough to see the impact that climate change is actually happening on us. So we need to really find a way of embracing our planet. I mean, I'm going to end with an idealistic statement and, you know, we can only deny climate change if we become disconnected from the weather patterns that are around us and the, the burning forest fires. So when we, we start to become connected to that, um, we start to become more active and involved with want, wanting to heal our planet. Right on. Right on. I hear That's you, man. A way to end. <laughs> That's a great way to end. That's a positive note to leave people on. Exactly. Uh, and for those that have been listening, you know, I appreciate you tuning in. If you have any questions or want to check out the, the links and the resources that Mark and I have shared today. Everything's going to be over at the blog at brianhardy.ca forward slash maps, M-A-P-S, maps, as in Maps Canada, um, which is a fantastic organization to learn about research, to donate to research, right, to help them fund these studies. These are not cheap endeavors. Um, Thank so you. Yes. So if you're, you. if you're listening to this and you've got deep pockets or investor friends and you see the potential here, please, you know, consider, strongly consider uh, getting involved and, uh, and contributing to what I, what I believe is going to be a, a true evolutionary step for humanity and for healing um, and for us as a species to hopefully figure this out before it's too late. Yes. Create some semblance of sustainable wellness on the planet. Yes. And in our communities. So Thank you, that, that, you're very welcome. You're very welcome. So that would be my ask. Um, if you want to connect uh, to some of this research, you know, there's the maps Canada website. Is there any of the other resources or, um, you know, mentions you want to throw out to people? Well, I, I appreciate you mentioning the funding aspect because the maps Canada isn't funded by pharmaceutical companies. Um, they're funded by people who see the benefit. And, and some people offer us small amounts and some people offer us medium amounts. But you know, any, any help, um, the Maps Canada website has a donate now button and we can offer tax receipts for anybody. And so it's really, 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 really appreciated when people actually step up and want to help what we're doing. Right on. So you heard it. You know, put your dollars where your heart is and uh, the future will be better for all of us. Uh, until next time, I want to thank you for joining us, Mark. This has been thoroughly fascinating. You've given me lots to chew on and, uh, and to dig into. And for everyone listening, keep redefining reality. Ciao for now. Thank you, Brian. Okay. Now that you have made it through that interview, I hope you are enlightened 
and that you are more aware of certain things that are out there that can help you, um, as well as, you know, have a more balanced perspective on this whole issue uh, in this whole realm of healing and personal growth and exploration. Um, it's powerful stuff. It is powerful stuff. And so if you appreciated this episode, go on over to iTunes, leave a rating and a review, and share this podcast on social media or share it, forward it to somebody on your email who could benefit from this information. That's why I do this. That's why a lot of us in this world of podcasting and health do this work. It's so we can share what works and help everybody get better, feel better, uh, and transcend these crazy, crazy times that can be very challenging. So that's that. I appreciate you, and I wish you the very best this week. Until next time, keep redefining reality. Peace and much love.